If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We're finishing a section in the book of Colossians that is all about true spiritual maturity. As you're turning there, I just want to tell you what a great privilege it is to be able to stand before you today and to deliver to you the Word of God. Ever since men and women were first created, we were made to hear God's Word, to listen and to obey. In the fall, we stopped doing that. And so when a pastor gets behind a pulpit, he understands the immensity of his responsibility and the great importance of that moment to deliver God's Word to God's people. It's a privilege I get to enjoy this morning. And I just want to publicly thank God for that. It's also a privilege not every pastor has this Sunday. And um, I'm going to lead us in prayer for just a few seconds. And I'm wanting to pray this morning for Pastor James Coates of Alberta. Um, This morning he's in maximum security prison in solitary confinement by the Canadian authorities by refusing to turn away worshipers from his church in order to please government restrictions. At this time, the only condition for his release is for him to promise to stop preaching. And he has refused. So he's still in prison. And as a pastor, I feel that. Because nothing is more important than hearing God's Word. And therefore, as a pastor, nothing is more important than making sure you're preaching it and that people can come to hear it. And so let's just pray for, for a few seconds for Pastor James Coates. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning that uh, we have the privilege this morning to come to this place to hear the Word of God taught. We thank You, Father, for its life-giving truth. We thank You that it opens blind eyes, makes wise the simple, revives the heart. Father, we thank You that it makes fools wise and guides us on right paths. Father, we thank You that this morning Your Word can be delivered to us as a church. I pray for Pastor James's congregation. I pray that they might be able to hear God's Word. All of them. As they need to and must. I pray that they would be able to come together to worship You as they ought to express the one another's to each other, to encourage one another and all the more as they see the day drawing near. Father, I pray that You would be with 
Pastor James, as he is uh, in prison for preaching your word, I pray that you would release him. We know you have the power to do that. Remember when Peter was thrown in jail. You did a miracle. I pray that you would do the same for Pastor James. But in the meantime, Father, I pray that as he is in that situation, that you would teach him the lessons he needs to learn. And I pray that while he is in that position, we would remember him and we would learn the lessons we need to learn. Help us not to take this moment for granted. May we hear your word and may we listen and obey. May we receive from you the grace and life and strength that you have to give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul has already stated here in Colossians, back in chapter 1, verse 28, that his goal in ministry was to present everyone mature in Christ. And so he explores in these verses what spiritual maturity looks like in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 2, Paul looks at the three encouragements, the three encouragements of spiritual maturity and growth, which is full learning, making the Word of God fully known. Making the Word of God fully known. Faith, faithful leaders as well who struggle in teaching and praying for the body. And fervent love from other believers who mutually encourage each other in our Christian walk. Where these three encouragements, full learning, faithful leaders, and fervent love exist among the body of Christ, their spiritual maturity will flourish and grow also. But what does that spiritual growth look like? We studied last week in verses 2-3 through where we saw the essence of spiritual maturity, which is treasuring Christ. A truly mature Christian is one who is growing in a sure understanding that Jesus Christ is all they need. Paul says, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything we need for life and godliness, for living a life, for the glory and honor and praise of God is found in the knowledge of Him. And therefore, a growing Christian will be marked by one singular obsession, knowing Christ. That is why believers in the early church were first called Christians by the watching world. It was because their life was obsessed with Christ. They talked about Christ. They studied Christ. They served Christ. They imitated Christ. They worshipped Christ. They lived for Christ. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. This is the essence of true spiritual maturity. It is treasuring Jesus. A truly mature believer knows that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all that is needed for living for the glory and honor of God. That brings us this morning to the final detail about spiritual maturity that we need to understand, and that is the effects of spiritual maturity. That's seen in verses 4-5. through When believers knit together in love beneath full learning and faithful leaders grow in their understanding and worship of Christ, that maturity produces two very valuable virtues in the lives of those believers. Spiritual discernment, we'll see this morning, and steadfast devotion. So these are the effects of spiritual growth and maturity. Spiritual discernment and steadfast devotion. So with that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 2. 
verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the Word of God. And all of His commandments are sure, made for when the insolent persecute us with falsehood. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that this morning we have Your Word. We thank You that this morning it will remind us once again of the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank You, Father, that this morning if we have Christ, we have all we need. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we are complete in Him. So Father, I pray that this morning You would drive from our hearts and our minds a discontentment. That You would make us content in Christ. Pray that You would move us along in our journey of maturity this morning. That Your Word, by the power of Your Spirit, would transform our hearts that we might love Christ more and live for Him more as a result of this message today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now that we know the encouragements and the essence of spiritual maturity, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, highlights the effects of spiritual maturity, and that is in verses 4 through 5. The effects of spiritual maturity. And there are two effects. When believers who are knit together in love beneath faithful leaders and full learning, come to realize that Christ alone is all they need, that maturity and growth produces two side effects. First, spiritual maturity produces spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. That's in verse 4, where Paul writes, I say this. In other words, I say, I give this claim. That all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ alone. I say this, why? In order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, he says. See, one of the reasons why Paul so bluntly and so boldly declares the truth of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency at the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2 is because he knows that the devil is a liar and the father of all lies. And one of Satan's tactics in disseminating his lies to God's people is to mix it with just enough truth just enough logic and just enough persuasion that people are tempted to swallow it. This is what Satan did when he tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. 
He attached Bible verses to the outside of his lie to see if Jesus would swallow it. Well, doesn't God say it is written? It's the old Trojan horse tactic. If the argument looks good enough or sounds good enough, on the outside, maybe people won't realize it's just a dressed up lie until it's too late. 2 Peter 2 verse 1 warns us when false teachers come, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is how Satan always works. He uses deception and hypocrisy, distinguishing falsehood as truth. Disguising falsehood as truth. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 13 through 15 says, False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see, Satan's messengers will never walk up to you and say, Hi, I'm from the church of Satan. Would you like to learn about the occult today? No, they'll say, Hi, we're from the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Would you like to have a Bible study? Or they'll say this, Hey, we're from Bethel Church. Would you like to experience the presence of God and learn how to speak words of power, prosperity, and well-being into your life? Or more, perhaps, pertinent to the example that the Colossians were dealing with, Hi, we're followers of Yeshua, recovering our Jewish roots. Would you like to come to the synagogue and learn how to observe the Talmud as the only word of God? Or, Hi, we are followers and witnesses of the one great God of light, Jehovah Would you like to learn how to shrug off your sinful flesh and unite with the spiritual entities of our cosmos? Sounds really good, doesn't it? All these things sound good and spiritual at first glance, but they're all poison apples that are rotten at their core. This is how Satan and his thralls always work. Romans 16, 18 says, By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They do it with empty words, Ephesians 5, 6 says. With false words, 2 Peter 2, 3 says. As Paul says here, they seek to deceive people with plausible arguments. With plausible arguments. Arguments that sound really good, but do not agree with the saving realities of Jesus Christ. I want you to consider this morning, what might some of those arguments be? Well, considering verse 3 before this that we just looked at, those arguments would be preeminently those arguments that say that spiritual wisdom and knowledge can somehow be found outside of the person of Jesus Christ. This is the lie that Satan and his cunning had been propagating ever since the garden. You don't need to come to God for wisdom, Eve. Why, if you just eat this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You can have wisdom apart from the person of God. You can live life just fine without Him. That's the lie that deceived Eve. Genesis 3.6 says that when she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. See, it was that lie that somehow wisdom, somehow knowledge, somehow understanding and insight and guidance for my life can be found outside the person of God. That lie caused the entire human race to fall into sin and chaos. And it works so well, Satan has not let up on it. He still spreads the lie that meaning and wisdom and knowledge and understanding and insight can be found outside the person of Christ. 
Paul says that these arguments might sound, he says at first glance, reasonable and even very persuasive. But they are intended to undermine the sufficiency of Christ and to supplant Him as the source of wisdom and knowledge. One of the areas I see this happening in churches today is what I guess you could call, and I kind of invented my own term here, so I'll explain it, moral psychology. This is when psychology invades the area of morality. And psychologists set themselves up as authorities over and against Christ in the spheres of virtue and righteousness. So that's why today so many sins are now being labeled as sicknesses by our culture. Being consumed with lust is no longer called fornication, immorality, or adultery. It's being called sex addiction. It's no longer a sin to be delivered from. It's just a sickness, a mental illness to be cured of. Therefore, Christ is not what you need. What you need is just therapy and a clinic. Soon they'll abandon even that and they'll do what they did with homosexuality and transgenderism and soon polygamy. They'll just call it an alternative lifestyle and they'll make it someone's identity brothers and sisters in christ we cannot let that happen in our own thinking that is heartbreaking when they do that because when sin becomes identity you remove all hope completely we cannot do that to people people are not homosexuals they are not transgender people they are not porn addicts addiction addicts they are sinners that are overcome with a sin just like all of us a sin that they can be delivered from by the power of christ and such were some of you paul writes it all begins by the plausible argument it's not a sin it's a sickness Now those are easy examples that I could pick on and I could move on and make you feel very comfortable. That's not my job. To live, to live, to live in a settled state of anxiety, is that a sickness or a sin? It's a sin. God says be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4.6. So I have a question for you. Do you approach anxiety as a sin that you must do spiritual battle with, or do you approach it as a sickness you must physically live with? To live in, to live in a settled state of depression or despair and discouragement, is that a sickness or a sin? It's a sin. God said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4. So again, I have the question, do you approach despair and discouragement as a sin that you must do spiritual battle with or as a sickness you must physically live with? Are these things fundamentally sicknesses or are they fundamentally sins? Now to be clear, I need to be clear, in most cases it involves both. Many cases it involves both. Human beings are both physical and spiritual entities and actions in one area of our lives will often lead to repercussions in another. Is that not true? Your physical life can influence your spiritual life. And your spiritual life can influence your physical life. 
I've seen this in my own family. Sometimes if you take too strong of a physical antibiotic, you will enter into an intense spiritual battle against dark thoughts until you can get that drug out of your system. Conversely, if you give yourself spiritually to sinful lusts and sinful thought patterns, that will physically rewrite your brain, which makes turning from that sin all the harder. We live in weak and sinful bodies that are beset by sicknesses. And those sicknesses often create weaknesses that our sinful flesh takes advantage of. So don't get me wrong. I don't want you to hear something that I'm not saying, right? Mankind gets sick. Mankind is sick. But here's the emphasis. Men and women don't become sinners because fundamentally they're sick. Men and women become sick because fundamentally they're sinners. That's what Scripture teaches. And there's a world of difference there because it's saying this, the ultimate source of mankind's problems is not an illness. And therefore, the ultimate solution to mankind's problems is not therapy, it's Jesus Christ. It's battling sin as sin with all the spiritual resources available to you in Christ Jesus Do not be deceived by plausible arguments like it's not a sin, it's just a sickness. It's not Christ, it's a clinic you need. Don't be deceived, be discerning. Be discerning. As Paul says a few verses later in Colossians 2 verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't be deceived. Be discerning. Does this line up in accordance to Christ and His teachings or not? Or is this just worldly philosophy? Don't be deceived, lest the 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I want you to turn over really quickly to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, it's a verse that says it way better than I could. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14. What do we need so that we're not deceived by the worldly ideas that are around us and beset us on every side. What do we need so that we can hold fast to Christ? So that we can become mature. What do we need? Hebrews 5.14 But solid food is for the what? Mature. By those who have their powers of what? discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. See, those who are spiritually mature are those who are spiritually discerning, who have the ability to distinguish between truth and error, between right and wrong. In short, those who are spiritually mature and discerning are those who have the ability to think biblically in the moment. This can only happen as we pursue from God's Word a sure understanding and knowledge of Christ in His Word. Where there is no knowledge, there can be no discernment. As Dr. Albert Moeller once wrote, the tragedy that evangelicals have lost the art of biblical discernment 
must be traced to a disastrous loss of biblical knowledge. Discernment cannot survive without doctrine. This is what spiritual maturity produces it. This is what pursuing Christ above all produces. It produces a spiritual discernment, the ability to know the truth in order to not be led astray by error. As 1 Thessalonians 5.21-22 says, Test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. We have to be like the noble Bereans who even when they heard the Apostle Paul examine the Scriptures daily to see if the things that he was saying was true. Don't be mesmerized. Analyze. That's your calling. Look past the presentation. Focus on the content. What are they saying? Regardless of how well they might be saying it. Examine everything you read, everything you hear, everything you watch for the truthfulness of its content rather than the attractiveness of its packaging. For as one scholar put it, nothing is so dangerous as feeble reasoning that is applied to fast talking. Don't be deceived. Be discerning. This is what spiritual maturity produces. When believers who are knit together in love beneath faithful leaders and full learning come to realize that Christ alone is all they need, that singular pursuit produces spiritual discernment. They know what's right, they know what's wrong. And second, it produces a steadfast devotion. Steadfast devotion. That's in verse 5, where Paul writes this. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That is a beautiful, beautiful verse. Paul says here that even though he was physically imprisoned and kept from them in Rome, he was still with them, he says, in spirit. And I want you to know that that means way more than just, I'm with you, buddy, and I've got your back. That is not what Paul is saying. You look at Jesus, or you look at Paul, he uses the exact same expression when he describes our life with Christ in Colossians chapter 3. He's talking about something way bigger than just, I'm on your side. We'll see later in chapter 3, Paul here is talking about a deep, a deep spiritual reality that exists. He's referring to the astounding, intimate spiritual union that exists between all true believers even when they are apart from each other. Paul says, or Paul talks about the spiritual reality actually over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 3-5 through is another cross-reference if you want to look it up later. When he tells the Corinthian church there, Though absent in body, I am present in spirit. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. See, just as believers are spiritually united to Christ through faith in Him, so believers are spiritually united to each other through faith in Christ as well. We have a common spiritual union as believers. If you are united to Christ in faith, and I am united to Christ in faith, and we are united together in Christ by faith. And Paul uses that spiritual reality to both rebuke the Corinthian church to turn from their error and to encourage the Colossian church here to continue in the truth that they had received. Paul is reminding them, listen to this, 
that when the local church united to Christ acts in some way, all of those who are united to Christ are acting with them. The whole, listen to this, the whole kingdom of heaven acts and is represented when a local church acts. We are an embassy of heaven. We represent the entire kingdom of God when we meet together. Therefore, what happens here in this body is infinitely more important and majestic than anything that will ever happen in Washington, D.C. or any hall of power. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I have given to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What you declare should be what the heavens declare. What you do should be what the heavens do. What happens here is infinitely more important than happens anywhere else. It just is. It's theologically true. If you think differently, then you've got to get back to the Word. When a local church that is united to Christ acts, the whole kingdom of God acts and is represented in that moment also. So don't sell short the local church. It is the most beautiful thing, the closest to heaven you'll ever get till you get there. When the local church that's united to Christ acts, the whole kingdom of God acts and is represented also because we're all united to one Christ and we're all indwelt by the same Spirit. And that's why Paul rejoiced, he said, to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul rejoiced when he saw this because it meant that they, as a local church, were still representing Christ the King and the rest of His kingdom correctly and rightly and truly. How? He says, by your good order and your firmness of your faith in Christ. See, both of those are military terms. And so the image is that of, like Paul, like a colonel, who is overseeing and inspecting his own general's troops. And he rejoiced to see first, he says, your good order. See, the Colossian church was operating here like an orderly army, with every soldier serving in their appointed place. See, God is not a God of disorder, but of order. And he calls his people to do everything decently and in order, in line with his word and will. Well, the Colossian church was, at this time, listening to their commander. They had good order among their ranks. Alongside Epaphras, who had taught the gospel to them, the Colossian church had faithful leaders leading, and they also had faithful members following. Leaders leading and members following. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. They were like a solid flank. Their shields were locked together. They were standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. They had good order in the church. Second, Paul also rejoiced to see, as another evidence of their maturity, their firmness of their faith in Christ. Because they were all united together in love and good order beneath full learning and faithful leaders striving together towards a common purpose and goal of spiritual maturity in Jesus, the Colossian believers were like a solid wall of stalwart soldiers, steadfast and immovable against Satan's assaults. It is true. The Colossian church at this moment was under siege by lies that Christ was not enough. They were hammering away at the Colossian church. But Paul rejoiced because they had not broken rank. They were still holding firm to Christ. They were still firm in their faith, steadfast in their devotion to Jesus, and Paul rejoiced to see it. Because of the faithful ministry of Paul, Epaphras, and others, because of their struggle to use all of Scripture to apply all of Christ to all of life, 
because of their commitment to proclaim Jesus Christ above all as the true storehouse of all wisdom and all knowledge, the Colossian believers were standing strong because they were firmly rooted in Christ. To borrow the words of Romans 16.25, because of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, they were strong. They were mature. And the effects of their spiritual growth and maturity were richly evident as they exhibited spiritual discernment and steadfast devotion amidst the assaults of the world. No one else can produce this type of growth. No one else can produce this type of wisdom. No one else can produce this type of strength. If we give ourselves as a church to any other focus, any other pursuit, we will crumble and fall beneath the deceits of the enemy. But if we cling fast to Christ and His Word and the good news of His sufficiency and His supremacy, we will stand strong side by side in this world for the glory of our God. Christ alone. We live in a world and in a cultural Christianity that begs for spiritual maturity. That call, that calls for its effects. Ephesians 4, 14-15 teaches this, that Satan seeks to toss us to and fro. He seeks to carry us about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And if you look around at churches today, that is exactly what is going on. And there is no good order. And there is no discernment. And there is no firmness of faith. Because there is no commitment to Christ above all. They do not believe that in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're falling to Satan's plausible argument. Just as Eve did in the fall. Grace Chapel, we have to retain our focus on Christ alone. We have to hold fast to Him who is our head that we may grow up in every way into Him and possess the spiritual discernment and the steadfast devotion that is needed to move forward together in this world for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Being mature in Christ. This is the Word of God from Colossians chapter 2, verses 4-5, through which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience. To that end, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do this work in our body. Father, you alone give faith. So Father, I pray that you would give faith to every member here today. Give them a firm conviction and a sure understanding that all they need is Christ. Father, help them to realize that they are complete in him that they do not need the wisdom of the world that they do not need the knowledge of those who are lost for their knowledge is always incomplete for how can you know the truth if you do not know him who is the truth though their insights may be helpful They are never full or complete. So Father, help us to cling to Christ alone.
Help us to receive from Him all that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. Father, I pray that this week we would exalt Christ above all by our influences. Help us to be in Your Word. Help us to see Christ daily. And help us to turn to the philosophies of this world, the ideas and opinions of this world, less and less, so that we might be at last some earthly good. Help us, Father, to grow and be more mature in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.